This is God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, and then Netophathite, Jezaniah, the son of Mekathite, they and their men, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, Gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah. At Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Balas, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Please, let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life? So that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered, and the remnant of Judah would perish. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, You shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. As far we read from God's word, the bright hope of Christmas is always set against a backdrop of darkness, difficulty, pain, confusion. The name of Jesus literally means he will save his people from their sins. We can't focus on Christmas without focusing on darkness and problems that we're finding in our lives and in the world. The more messy our lives are, the more we need Christ and Christmas. You can't cancel Christmas. It shines brighter the darker things are. 
uh, we are reminded that Christ has come. He has lived. He has died for us. He has risen. He ascended. He's been coronated there, sent to his Holy Spirit, and he promised that he will come again. We are actually living in a time where we're waiting for the second Christmas, if you will, the final Christmas when Christ will come again. We're waiting again for Christ to come, much as the ancient people were waiting for Christ to come in the first place. It's in our study here in the book of Jeremiah, the whole book has persistently spoken of this darkness, this sin. It's been the focus of Jeremiah's preaching. You people need to repent. You're doing wrong. Come back to the Lord. Turn to him. Turn to him. And the whole book of Jeremiah so far has pushed us toward the event that finally happened in the last chapter, chapter 39. The end that was anticipated by the prophet Jeremiah had happened. The fall and destruction of Jerusalem. Why wasn't that the end of the book? Why is there a chapter 40 at all? Because there's a bigger story. Ever since the first sin in Adam, God has promised judgment followed by restoration. After God judges, God restores. To sinning people, God said he will send the seed of the woman who will be bruised by the seed of the serpent. But then the seed of the woman will be victorious. Genesis 3, 15. Or Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness saw a great light. The bigger story is the, all of the scriptures that The God who had long promised Christ to come is the God who still says that Christ will come. He gives hope to his people after judgment. Life in Jerusalem continued after the brutal attack in order to show us something significant about God. That this God is not finished yet. The destruction for Jerusalem showed a final day for Jerusalem as they knew it, but not the final destruction of the world. And in Jerusalem, there were still people left. There's a remnant. That is significant. It gives us hope in the middle of difficulties. Where does it leave us in our study? It leaves us with an important aspect of understanding our God. How God will treat the remnant left in Jerusalem after its downfall, the remaining people, is significant about who God is and our place in relating to him. In times of dark devastation, our God has great mercy to show us. Ever since the first Adam fell, we've been waiting for the second Adam to come and to reign. Ever since Jerusalem fell, God's people were waiting for Christ to come to that same city, rebuilt later, Jerusalem, and he has come. We celebrate that now, uh, all during Christmas time, that Christ has come. Ever since the covenant was broken, as we studied the the covenant in our study of Jeremiah, we wait for God to enact the new covenant, provide all that's promised in that new covenant for us. That brings us to our main point. Because of our covenant God, we're blessed while we're waiting for Christ to come. So let's take stock of where we are now in Jeremiah's story. Some people still live in the rubble of Jerusalem. Because people still live there, there's a need for them to organize themselves and have some sort of leadership over them. But before we get to that, which is the middle of the chapter, we start the chapter with one more telling of how God preserved our beloved Jeremiah. It's encouraging that in the middle of judgment, God preserves his people, starting with Jeremiah. So verses 1 to 6, our first point, waiting in danger, God preserves his people. Babylon's God's tool, right? His tool for destruction, that's what God used to destroy his people in judgment for sin. But Babylon's also God's tool for preserving his people. It's two-pronged. Remember how we studied this? 
Let's look at the contrast with how Babylon treated Jerusalem, the city, and how Babylon treated Jeremiah, the prophet. First, we look at how God used Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. It's remarkable literature here, fascinating how in verses 1 through 3, now God placed the summary narration and the accurate explanation of the fall of the city into the mouth of a foreigner. Who gets the line in the play? It's the foreigner. It's just absolutely fascinating. It's nearly humorous. It's so joyful for us to see. A Babylonian military officer speaks God's message to Jeremiah. This is absolutely fun. Listen to verses 1 through 3. You determine whether the Babylonian general understood the true reason why Jerusalem fell. Let me read verses 1 to 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you, end quote. Did you notice that the Babylonian military general even used the covenant name of the God of Israel, the Lord? He said it was God who brought the fall to the city. He said it was God who executed it and implemented it. He, was, he said the underlying and sole reason was because of the sin of people. And get this, he even said it's because you didn't listen Remember class? Remember church? Shema, yes, that Hebrew word is there again. Because you didn't listen. The Babylonian military general is even saying the watchword, Shema. Did that general understand the fall of Jerusalem and why it happened? He sure did. Amazing. Then, a Babylonian general, who's still God's tool, Sounds strangely like God's prophet. Imagine, if you will, that humorous moment. He's saying this to Jeremiah. I almost imagine Jeremiah turning to the Babylonian general and saying, Hallelujah, amen, and tell me about it. I've been trying to say this to this city for 40 years. You're telling me? Interesting. It's just so humorous on the page. And here's the hope. Since God is true to his covenant promises for destruction, we can be equally sure that God is true to his covenant promises for rescue. What, is, what will our God do for his faithful prophet now? Now let's compare that. The answer is found in verses 4 through 6. We are supposed to notice the difference between how the two kings treated Jeremiah. Remember the previous king Zedekiah, king of Judah, king of Israel, who lowered Jeremiah into a pit? And then after that, he kept him on house arrest? He had him beaten? This enemy general now releases Jeremiah and assigns people to care for Jeremiah. It seems backwards both sides, doesn't it? But there's more. The same Babylonian general now speaks to Jeremiah about Jeremiah's safety, and it sounds remarkably considerate, deferential, and accommodating. It's almost as if the conquering general in speaking to Jeremiah has become his personal chauffeur. And he says, I'll have my people take you wherever you would like to go. And could I refill your drink almost? Listen to the words, verse 4. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come. And I will look after you well. 
But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. Verse 5, if you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam and son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. End quote. The verse continues, though, verse 5. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Then, verse 6, Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. Why are these verses in the Bible? What does this say to us? It shows us the same God who keeps his promises for judgment. There's this city probably still smoking is the same God who keeps his promises for rescue, salvation, and blessing. Between verses 1 and 3 and verses 4 to 6, look what we have. The first two words in verse 4 tell us the contrast. Now, behold. This is stated, I remind you again, by the mouth of the Babylonian general in order to differentiate between what God did in judgment on the city by the hand of the Babylonians and what God did in Jeremiah at the hand of the Babylonians, the careful attention that the God of heaven gave to protecting and providing for his servant Jeremiah at the hands and at the expense of the enemy army of Babylon. (laughs) They gave him a present. They gave him an allowance. This is our God. God is saying to Jeremiah, you're free. Choose your own future, and I'm going to have the enemy pay for it. Well done, Jeremiah, preaching my word to this audience for these 40 years. Now vindicated. Is he not vindicated? Jeremiah is now given a government allowance of food. Brings us to point two. Waiting in need, God provides for his people. Verses 7 to 12. The community of Jerusalem for a long time imagined itself to be able to do whatever it wanted to do. Americans, does that sound familiar to you? We're surrounded by people who say in their own mind, I can do whatever I want to do. That's the context same sinful nature as today. So how do you set up a leadership, how do you set up a government of defeated remainder of an autonomous people who've recently been attacked and overthrown? Is this not a little bit of a quandary or difficult situation? How do you find a good leader who can go between Babylon and his people who are still somewhat rebellious but conquered? Uh, warning to you as listeners, to us as readers, this new administration we're about to discuss may not end well. Because something is needed in the hearts of the people, not just in the government of the people. So here goes verse 7. The king of Babylon appointed a local leader. His name was Gedaliah. The same Gedaliah who back in verse 5 was told to take care of Jeremiah by taking Jeremiah to his own house. Gedaliah seems to be a person trusted enough by the Babylonians to be put in local leadership and at the same time trusted enough by his own people to lead them. It's a delicate situation for any new leader in that situation. He and his fellow Israelites or Judahites are forced to come to terms with having an occupying enemy. And they were soundly defeated. There is no bargaining power. And Gedaliah would need to cooperate with the occupiers without earning the scorn of his own people. We actually have a word for that. It's called quizzling. A quizzling is a person who excessively accommodates to a foreign occupying force. Would he be a quizzling in the eyes of his fellow countrymen? 
How could he stay vigilant for his own people while still pleasing the enemy force? It's a difficult place to be. Verse 7, the people heard that Gedaliah is appointed leader. Verse 8, the people gathered to meet with him. Verse 9, he told them his policy, if you will, his opening speech, his inauguration speech. He says to the people, this is how I see it. Serve the king of Babylon. Verse 10, Gedaliah said he will do his best to represent the people to the enemy king. Notice, he didn't say he'd represent Babylon to the people. He said he'd represent his people to Babylon. So he's choosing sides. He's telling them who he's really for. I'm with you. I'm one of you. I'm loyal to you. I'll serve your interests best I can. And look, I'm in a tough spot. Gedaliah's doing his best. He encouraged the people in that context, serve the king of Babylon. And that's what will bring you well-being. He asked the people to enjoy the fruits of the land and to live their lives. It sounds like what Jeremiah has been saying. Submit to Babylon. This is God's plan. This is God's judgment upon us. Let's accept God's will for us and for our redemption eventually. Verse 11, the people who had run away to other countries, heard that there's some survivors back home and that Gedaliah is our new governor. So in verse 12, those runaways returned home also. They also start to enjoy the blessings of gathering produce and a lot of it. Sounds like King David. You remember the time when King David would bring the poor gathered around him? What is God's message to us? That God will provide one day... In the coming Christ, the Messiah, and in the meantime, he'll provide every day for his people in a messed up Jerusalem. Consider how Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread, Father. That's how we're taught to pray. That's the prayer coming out of Jerusalem in those days. That's the prayer coming out of America in these days. It's the Christian approach to our God. We look to God to provide for us in dark times, and he does. That's why this passage is here. Consider what leader God placed over us as we wait for his second coming. He placed Christ over us, not this Gedaliah. Isaiah 9, 6, To us a child is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and the increase of his government will have no end. What government? The kingdom. We're in the kingdom of Christ that God provides for us as people. That brings us to our third point, waning in faith, God keeps his promises to his people. Verses 13 to 16, the end of our study. Verse 13, Gedaliah is approached by a loyal leader under him, a man named Johanan. Verse 14, Johanan gives him an intelligence report of a threat of assassination on the life of our new governor, Gedaliah. But Gedaliah wouldn't believe it. Verse 15, Johanan does his best to ask for permission to execute the person making threats. This is a real threat, sir. You're not going to survive this, sir. We need to act and do it now. Please give me permission, sir. You see the interest in verse 15. And verse 16, Gedaliah's second answer is the same. He would not allow it. That's how our chapter ends. It's to be continued. (laughs) I didn't have time today to go into chapter 41. It's a cliffhanger for you. You need to come back or read ahead this afternoon in verse, uh, chapter uh, 41. But the point is clear. God always cares for his people. And when we consider how this governor, Gedaliah, refused to believe that someone could possibly assassinate him, it was not how our King Jesus viewed the heart of man. When Jesus was in the same city of Jerusalem, years later, now rebuilt, we read in John 2, verse 24, Jesus 
said, it said about Jesus that he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for Jesus himself knew what was in man, John 2.24. Jesus knew what man was capable of doing. Very, very easily could be the case that someone would want to assassinate Jesus. He would readily believe that. What we also know about Jesus is that he understood it can be the people closest to us who let us down. Matthew 13, 57, he said, A prophet is without honor, is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. Matthew 13, 57. Christ knew that it's the people closest to us who can let us down, but Christ reminds us that he will never let us down. Gedaliah might let you down. Others might let you down, but Christ says, I will never let you down. God says, I'm faithful to my promises, to my people. Look to me and to me alone. Christ keeps his promises to his people, even when a little remnant, a little snippet of people. Our God has always been like this. It's a story not just of Jeremiah and the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a story of the Bible, that God looks out for his people no matter how small. The days of Noah, God preserved eight persons on the ark. 1 Peter 3.20. The days of Abraham, the future of God's people rested on one man, Isaac, the son of promise. In the days of Jacob, God sent Joseph to Egypt to preserve a remnant on earth, Genesis 45.7. In the days of kings, only a remnant survived the fall of Jerusalem, and in the days of the exiles, the prophets predicted only a remnant would return, Isaiah 10.22. And sure enough, in the book of Ezra, when the exiles returned 70 years later, they said about themselves, Ezra 9, verses 8 to 15, we are a remnant that has escaped. It's the story of God blessing a small number of people in a dark situation who are waiting for Christ. That's us. We're we're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for Christmas, in a sense, for Christ to come again. But even after Christ came, there was still a, a small number. His first coming, his first Christmas, what we're reflecting back on historically, in the days of the ministry of our Lord Jesus, he referred to his disciples as a little flock, Luke 12, 32. But consider what he was saying to his little flock, Luke 12, 29. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Uh, Do not be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 29 to 32. Words from our Lord Jesus to remind us of this theme through Scripture that God cares for his people no matter how small the number. The remnant nature of the church is true not just for the church of the first century, not just for the church in good times, through the 20 centuries of church history up till now. It's true for the church in every generation, especially in dark times. The strength of the church is not in large numbers. The strength of the church is not in strategies for getting larger numbers, for reaching out to the world as important and vital as that is. The strength of the church is not in better management techniques or in our own personal toughness. The strength of the church is in God's gracious promise that he will always protect his people. That if there's one institution on earth that has a promise direct from God that it will not be destroyed, it's the church of Jesus Christ. 
Nothing else has that promise on it. God's gracious promise will preserve his people, preserve his church, and give us the kingdom. This is the good news from Jeremiah 40. Like I said, I think it's providential we're here as we enter the Christmas season. I have two application points. We've already started to apply it to ourselves, but two more pointed applications. Number one, admire Jesus as the only one who listened to God the Father when he came the first Christmas to die for our sins. Admire Jesus as the only one who listened to God the Father when he came at the first Christmas to die for our sins. The people of God were waiting for Christ, and then he came. That's why he came at Christmas, because he was obedient. It's the true leader for whom we were waiting. It's not Gedaliah, after all, and it's not David, after all. We admire Jesus for listening. Jesus fulfilled the Shema when no one else would listen to God the Father. He didn't take steps like Ishmael did in our chapter 40 to usurp the throne by assassinating the governor. Rather, Jesus waited for the Father to exalt Jesus to the highest place using the Father's timing and the Father's way. Jesus submitted to being obedient even if that obedience to the Father led him to the cross and to actually die on it. He was obedient to the Father, Shema, to the Father, even at that cost, in order to pay the required price for the sins of God's people. It was not satisfying to God's holiness to destroy the whole city of Jerusalem. It was warranted, but it didn't satisfy the holiness of God. It was destroyed for the sin of the people, but it didn't end the wrath of God. Not even the the fact that the ancient temple was in the city and was destroyed as well. It was required by the holiness of God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the innocent one, would take our sins upon himself and he would die in our place. And that and only that would satisfy the Father's holy demand. He must be destroyed for the sins of the people. And what we needed was for Jesus to agree to do this, to be born for us, in order to die for us. It's all tied together. It's why we make such a big deal about Christmas. If you ever get a bah humbug notion in your head, remember that this is really why we make a big deal and we ought to always make a big deal about Christmas because we needed Jesus to agree to take on human flesh for the express purpose of dying for us. We needed him to obey these two major points in God the Father's redemption plan. Come from heaven to earth at Christmas and go to the cross for us. We admire Jesus for this. As we listen to a beautiful summary Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 6, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, listen, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we admire Jesus as the one who listened. Second and last application point. Trust God to provide for us until Jesus comes again. Trust God to provide for us until the second coming, if you will, the last Christmas, the last time that Christ comes. Just as the ancient people wait for Christ to come in the first time he came, 
So we're waiting for Christ to come the last time. And he's coming. In the intervening time. That's what this chapter tells us. In the intervening time between now and when Christ comes again, he has provided for his ancient people as a picture of how he works with us, the remnant. It's one of the main lessons of Christmas. It's one of the main lessons of the Bible that God has given us the gift of Christ and if he's given us Christ, he'll give us all things. He's in our hearts by faith. Every light at Christmas reminds us of the light of Christ himself. Paul wrote this way in 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. End quote. Let all mortal flesh keep silent and trust God to provide for us until the last Christmas. Let's pray.